This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, enjoy today's message with Travis Bronner. Good morning. Two things we don't lack around here, creativity and bloopers. And lots of them. And for the record, Kami said shoot when she broke the ornament, okay? Just in case that wasn't clear. Welcome this morning. Good to see you all here in the castle across the way at the gathering place. Also, if you're joining us outside, welcome to you in the cold, wet morning. And uh, a special welcome as we're streaming um, to those of you sitting in a deer stand. Uh, We're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, We are in the Ozarks where the only thing to keep more people home from church than a pandemic is deer season. So we'll see you next week. Uh, So... Uh, my name is Travis Brauner. I'm uh, part of the teaching team and one of the elders here at Woodland Hills, and we do something every week. We take an offering, and things have changed a little bit over the last year or so. Uh, we have different ways of giving. If you desire to write a paper check, we still have offering boxes in the back of the foyer, also at the gathering place, so you have that opportunity. The Church Center app is highly useful, a great uh, resource for us. You can give through it. You can give online at woodhills.org. Or uh, a new method that we have is uh, text to give, where you can simply text the dollar amount to 84321. And uh, we are extremely uh, grateful for the generosity of this church and all of you and encourage you to continue in your generosity in this season. Uh, Again, we say thank you. Uh, You received something as you came in the door this morning. And uh, this has a few things in it. First of all is uh, uh, Christmas in the Courtyard invitation for December 1st. That's a week from this coming Wednesday, December 1st. We invite you and your family to come along and enjoy kicking off the Christmas season uh, with us. There's also a calendar of events for December because December is always a busy month. And so a nice calendar in there to, to tidy all of those activities up for you. And then gift of a cookie cutter there. So make some cookies and uh, bring some for me. <laughs> um, I like cookies. So uh, this morning, though, we're continuing in our Greater Joy series as we're working through uh, the book of Philippians and uh, talking about how Paul expressed greater joy and how we can experience greater joy. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to wish you a happy November 21st. And you're like, what's that? Well, for me and my wife, it is the now 29th anniversary of our first date. And uh, I have a, a picture of that occasion. And you're thinking, he is a child, and she looks the same, still. Uh, But uh, I I took her to a a high school football playoff game, and then, of course, to Silver Dollar City. Um, I I bought her a gas station hot dog for lunch, and then we took a picture in an upright coffin. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, He's been a romantic from the start. And that's right. I know how to treat a lady. Who was born and raised in Branson? (laughs) She liked every bit of it. Uh, And now here we are, 23 years of marriage later and four kids. And so uh, it worked out. And I'm going to say it was the hot dog that sealed the deal. She liked hot dog. uh, But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. I just wanted to show a picture of my wife, how she looks the same. So uh, this morning, though, the title of the message, we're continuing in Philippians, uh, called Overcoming Compassion Fatigue. And I get a little bit nervous when we have a message of this type. When we say something like that, because it's kind of like when an article comes out that's, that, that says the dangers of overexercising and the couch potatoes rejoice, <laughs> right? Like, see, honey, I told you exercise is bad for you. 
No exercise is good for you. Over-exercising is bad for you. Compassion is a good thing. Compassion fatigue is a bad thing. So that's what we want to focus on this morning. And so uh, first, we're going to talk about compassion before we can get to compassion fatigue. And we're going to jump in with Romans chapter 12, verse 15, which says this. And we reference this a lot from the front here at Woodland Hills. You hear it a lot. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. It is a normal part of the Christian experience to see someone struggling and to have sorrow for them. We mourn with those who mourn. And sometimes we experience what what we would call sympathy, where we see someone struggling and you could say, I I feel sorry for them. But mourning with those who mourn is, is more than that. It's what we would call empathy, where empathy is, I feel that with you. I mourn with you. I can feel that sorrow with you. So sympathy is, I feel sorry for you. Empathy and mourning with someone is, I feel that with you. And compassion goes one step further. So compassion is this, feeling sorrow for someone and desiring to do something about it. So you see, when we feel compassion, there's this urge inside of us to do something about what we are feeling sorrow for with someone else. Sympathy, I feel sorry for you. Empathy, I feel sorry, I feel bad. I feel sorrow with you. Compassion, I desire to do something about that for you and with you. So we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, and finish up uh, chapter 2 today. Um, as uh, we recall that Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and it is considered his joy letter where he expresses joy, and he shows us uh, with examples how we can experience greater joy. And so we're going to jump in on verse 19 of chapter 2, which says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I want you to underline that if you have your Bible or click the bookmark on your app. Genuinely concerned. That's very important. Because you can spot false concern, can't you? It seems like someone is helping you in your, in your misfortunes. And, and, and it may seem like they have your interests in mind, but clearly it can be otherwise. It's icky, right? False concern that someone may have. So moving on, verse 21 says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Underline that, proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy had proven worth. And what does that mean? In his compassion, his genuine concern and compassion, he had proven worth. It wasn't a single act. He had shown it over and over. From many acts of kindness and goodness. That means that just like exercise five minutes every six months doesn't cut it, giving the panhandler a dollar and moving on doesn't cut it. As far as our compassion is concerned, that doesn't mean we fulfilled our compassion requirement as followers of Jesus. You see, he had proven worth, which means it was a lifestyle to him. It was a character trait and a lifestyle. It's the way that he lived. So Timothy had genuine concern and proven worth. Then we go on in verse 23. It says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul wanted to send Timothy because of his genuine concern and his proven worth. And what we can learn from that is that when we have genuine concern and proven worth, that the Lord can use us in ministry. That's why Paul wanted to send him. Not someone else that may have their own interests in mind, but Timothy, who had proven, proven worth. I want to be someone that the Lord can send that has genuine concern and proven worth, that my compassion is real. 
I hope, therefore, to send him soon. Now, for the follower of Jesus, this should somewhat come naturally. And when I say naturally, I don't mean naturally as in the flesh, but naturally as followers who have the Holy Spirit in us. And so we should understand that kindness and goodness, kindness and goodness should naturally flow from the follower of Jesus. If you have Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, kindness and goodness are there. They're just looking for a way to get out. And you may say that that concerns me a little bit because I follow Christ. I'm a believer. I've placed faith in Christ. And frankly, sometimes I'm just not feeling it. I don't have that in me. I don't see people experiencing sorrow and have a drive to do something about it. And a couple of weeks ago, Scott talked to us about, in, in speaking about humility, talked to us about a video he had seen of a three-year-old that was trying real hard to turn four. Right? You, you just can't, you can't grit your teeth and make it happen with humility or with compassion. And what's the answer? The answer is this. If you're not feeling it, don't fake it, first of all. Second, draw near to God. Don't fake it. Remember, you, you can spot false concern. People know what false concern is. Don't fake it. Draw near to God. Draw near to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, the source of compassion, the one that as you draw near to him, you can't help but feel compassion for those who are struggling and their misfortunes. Kindness and goodness should flow naturally. But if you're not feeling it, don't fake it. Draw near to God. And we all have times of higher compassion, sometimes of lower compassion, and it can tend to fluctuate from one person to the next. And I've had plenty of times of low compassion where I can see someone struggling and I think I should probably be a little more empathetic about that, but I'm just not feeling it. And there have been other times where I've had real high levels of compassion. And I want to share with you a a time when compassion, frankly, hit me like a truck. It was when I was doing my residency training in Oklahoma City and I was consulted uh, to help take care of this this little girl on uh, the pediatric cancer ward. And I remember walking into that room and the picture that I saw was, was this little girl um, who was gaunt and wasted away. She had no hair on her head. Her eyebrows were even gone. And I think it hit me especially because her parents, one on each side of her bed, were sitting there. And the look in their eyes that they gave me as well as I walked into that room with a look of despair and hopelessness. And uh, we had a three-year-old and a newborn at home at the time, and I think that's especially why it hit me. Um, and, and I felt compassion like I had never felt before, and I don't think I've felt since. Where I want to I fix this. I feel sorrow. I feel this with you, and I want to fix it. I want to snap my fingers. I want to wave a wand. I want to do whatever I can to fix all of this. And what was paralyzing to me is I couldn't. There's nothing I could do to fix this problem, to just make it all go away. And that paralyzed me. And so I took care of what I was there to take care of, and I left. And as, as, I, as I'm walking out, before I even get to the door of the room, I'm crying. I'm choking up and crying. And, and by the time I get to the hallway out the unit, I'm weeping. And I, I just lost control. And, I, and I'm standing at this rail overlooking uh, at the balcony on the third, third level of the children's hospital there in Oklahoma City, overlooking the foyer. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, just thinking, this is, this is unbearable. I can't, I can't handle this level of sorrow and this, this level that the, the compassion the Lord had placed on my heart that day for that situation. 
And that's good. The Lord wants that from us. But I finally snapped to and realized in a moment that this is first thing in the morning. And there are a lot of things I still have to do today. There are a lot of people that still need me that I have to move on and help take care of things. And I realized that if I couldn't keep this in check, that I was eventually going to suffer from what we're talking about today, compassion fatigue, where, where emotionally and physically and relationally you just get worn down because of the compassion that you feel in meeting the needs of others, attending to people and their misfortunes, compassion fatigue. And so now we're going to turn the page as we continue reading in Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 25. It says, I have thought it necessary, this is Paul, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So we're, he's introducing a new person to us here. Who is Epaphroditus? He's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. You see that? How many things that Epaphroditus is to Paul and if to Paul, no doubt, to the church at Philippi as well because we see that he's the messenger from the church at Philippi. They had sent him to Paul to minister to him and to update him on how the church was doing. Look at all of those things. Today we would say Epaphroditus wore a lot of hats, right? He was doing a lot of things. He was tending to a lot of needs. And, and, and we understand that, that, that we as a church can do this sometimes with some people. Someone's willing and able. We can just keep throwing hats their way, right? And before you know it, someone gets the, these, these hats piled on, these things that they're tending to. And we move on. In verse 26, said, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And he was ill. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. First, I want to focus in on all of these things that Epaphroditus was to Paul and to the church at Philippi. This is why it's important for us to bear with one another the challenges of the church, the struggles of the church, the struggles of one another. Because sometimes we can tend to pile it on to one or two or a few people that will tend to take it on. And there's personal responsibility here too, I believe. Because the person that gets things piled on is the only one that knows their capacity. You are the only one that knows your calendar, your schedule, your time, your, your emotional capacity, your relational capacity, what you have going on at home. And if you're able to meet the needs uh, that someone is trying to, to ask you for help with, and if this is you that tends to take on all these things, you need to understand something. If you haven't heard this, you need to hear it. You can't be all things to all people all of the time. We have to understand that. And that's a hard one to swallow if you're the kind of person that loves to help people, loves to take on things, loves to see a misfortune and to fix a problem. Because otherwise, if you do, what you'll find yourself is bending to the urges of compassion with every misfortune that you see. And before you know it, you're, you're a virtual walking hat rack, taking on all of the needs of everyone around you. And there are a lot of misfortunes around that need things, they need help, that need addressing, that need concern and care. All around us, things like domestic abuse, childhood hunger, protecting the unborn, homelessness, the mental disabled, the physical disabled, mental illness, sex trafficking, drug and alcohol addicted. There are a lot of needs around us. And that's a short list, frankly. We could go on and on and on about so many needs that are out there. And the thing we have to be careful about, if you're one that tends to take things on, is it can start piling on and piling on and piling on. And the thing you need to understand, too, is that it's normal for different people to have different levels of compassion about different things. 
It is normal for different people to have different levels of compassion about different things. There's no single person that can take on everything, every misfortune that's out there. And frankly, there's no single local church that can take on every single misfortune that's out there. That's why it's wonderful to be a part of the body of Christ where there are others that have compassion about different things than you do. And if you don't know where your compassion, uh, maybe wheelhouse is, draw near to God. He'll tell you where your compassion should be and what he's calling you to. You see, we're, we're called to, to care about all people, but no single person can care for the misfortunes of all people. We have to accept that. It's a hard one. The Holy Spirit will guide you to where he wants you. How many of you, when you walk into a restaurant and you sit at the table and the table's wobbly, you fix the table? Who's a, who are the wobbly table fixers? Raise your hand. Okay, me too. Because we fix things, right? It's a problem and we're going to take care of it. We're going to fix it. How many of you walk into a restaurant, you sit down, and your table is just fine, but the strangers at the table next to you have a wobbly table, and you're just going to fix it for them just because that's what you do. Come on, you're out there. Yep. You people have a problem. <laughs> you need to chill out a little bit, okay? Um, early on in our marriage, when Carrie would tell me about a problem that she was having, a relationship that she was struggling with, um, it wouldn't be halfway through her telling me what's going on to where I'm giving her a solution to this problem, right? Because I'm going to fix it because I fix things, right? And thankfully, we learned the communication technique where she leads in with, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen to me. So outwardly, I said, okay. Inwardly, I said, then why are we having this conversation? What's the point, right? So she would start to tell me her problem. And on the outside, I would listen and validate and affirm. And on the inside, I would say, are you sure you don't want me to fix this problem? Because I don't know if anyone's told you, but I'm really smart. <laughs> and I'm really good at fixing things. You can ask anyone. Ask the strangers with the wobbly table. I can fix things, okay? Because my solutions and my opinions, they need to be heard, right? Because really, I mean, they're awesome. So <laughs> I've got to get them out there. I, I, I need to share this with, with her, right? These solutions and these problems. Do you hear the arrogance in that, though? The arrogance of, I've got to share my opinion. I've got to share my solution because, frankly, it's the best one. Uh, there's arrogance in that when we just have to get it out there. And, and when we have that attitude with anyone that's sharing problems or, or things with us, and we just think they need to hear my solution, and, and that's, that's the heart that we're coming with, we might as well always lead in with, I don't know if anyone's told you, but I'm really smart. Right? And that's not what we want. Remember earlier, I had you underline genuinely concerned. Timothy was genuinely concerned. Why? Because we need genuine concern to avoid this, what we call false compassion. False compassion. And, and, and the point here is not for you to have a lens to look through and say, there's false compassion, there's false compassion. What we're looking for here is a mirror to reflect in, to, to, to examine ourselves and say, do I, do I deal with false compassion sometimes? Is this something that I need to work on? Looking at myself in the way that I may always want to give an opinion or some advice or a solution. Uh, and, and the thing about false compassion is the sin is pride. 
The sin is pride because, because really I'm the smartest one in the room. And I don't know if y'all have been told that, but that's, that's the way it is, right? And it's pride that brings that out. And if you're not sure, here's something, some way to examine this. When you want to share an opinion or a solution, and as, as you're about to give this opinion, think to yourself, am I willing to do the work of this solution? Because remember, compassion involves feeling sorrow for someone and having a drive to do something about it. If not, then you have to beware because it may be pride that is the sin at the root of this false compassion. I just want my opinion to be heard. And I like sharing my opinion. <laughs> I really do. Uh, my uh, favorite quote regarding opinions was a few years back when I asked a friend and colleague, Dr. John Mall, if I could get his opinion on something. And I love his response. He said, of course you can. He said, I'm not immune to the middle-aged man's pleasure of having his opinion asked. So he, he shares that with me. And uh, the thing is, I've known men and women, young, middle-aged, and old, that love sharing their opinion, right? So there's no specific demographic that deals with this, I don't think. But I'm not immune from that. The thing about false compassion is we can also experience false compassion fatigue. Because as we think that our opinion is the best, our solutions are the smartest, and we're sharing them with everybody, and why isn't everybody listening to my advice? Because it's the best, and the outcomes aren't what they should be, and it's a see, I told you, and that is exhausting, isn't it? When you go around giving unsolicited advice and people aren't taking your advice, then you kind of take on ownership of the outcomes. Like, that didn't have to happen, right? But it wasn't yours to own to begin with. And so... As a mostly recovered um, uh, pathologic giver of opinions, I uh, started using a way of offering opinions or a way of going about uh, uh, using my opinions. And it's especially, I think, helpful with our our, uh, growing teenage kids and younger kids even. But instead of leading out with, here's my opinion, here's, here's what you can do. You can ask, is it okay if I share my opinion? Lead out with that. And that does a couple of things. One is it gives them the opportunity to say no. And if they say no, shut your mouth. (laughs) Even if you are thinking inside, I don't know if anyone's told you, but you've asked an opinion, right? Or you've asked permission. And what that does also, it, it alleviates you from the burden of the outcome. It helps you realize it takes a step away from the pride of my opinion is the best and steps forward with I have an opinion and they understand, you can do what you want with this. If you use my solution, great. If not, and it alleviates you from the burden of the outcome, right? So now in our marriage, um, and many years later, and like many of you, I, we, have, we have kids. I have a career and a business and ministries and other organizations that I spend a lot of time solving problems in, Right? So under those circumstances, when someone says to you, I don't want you to fix this problem, enjoy that. Because you may have spent all day or all previous day or weekend or week or whatever solving problems. And for someone to say, I don't want you to solve this, take that to heart. That's a good thing. And also what it does when she says that is regardless of the outcome, I'm not owning the outcome of this. All I'm here for is to listen to that. All right, now we're going to move back then to the issue of compassion fatigue, having covered the false compassion fatigue that we can sometimes suffer from. And we're going to look at Philippians 2. We're going to pick up in verse 27 now. It says, Indeed he, that's Epaphroditus, was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, 
but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28 continues, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Now, the thing is, we don't know for sure why Epaphroditus was sick. Um, so I think it's a safe assumption, though, knowing everything else that we're told about him, that he was back at the church at Philippi, he was serving, he was go, go, going, that he got a bit burned out, that he was tired physically, emotionally, relationally, his energy was shot, and then, oh, by the way, hey, we're going to send you to Paul, you're going to go on a journey to minister to Paul, take care of his needs, and report to him about how things are going here. So likely a long journey on top of already being exhausted, you get this? Right? You see where this is going. He's burned out, most likely. And again, Scripture doesn't tell us this. It's a safe, safe assumption, though, that this is why he got ill. And he fell ill. Even, even near to the point of death. Uh, shortly after we got married, we went on a snow skiing vacation. And um, I had grown up skiing and had spent quite a bit of time on the slopes. And my wife uh, had not. And so I was pretty good at skiing. I don't know if anyone's told you. Uh, <laughs> And she was a beginner. And so as we're, we're planning this, uh, she said, what are we going to do? Am I going to get an instructor? Are we going to go to ski school? What am I going to do? And so uh, I said, you don't need an instructor. You don't need ski school. I'll be there. And I don't know if anyone's told you. You know what I told her. So I started giving her some advice uh, about snow skiing. And the first thing I said is the first thing you need to learn is how to stop. And she said, shouldn't I learn how to go before I learn how to stop? I said, no, you're on these slick skis on a hill, and gravity is going to pull you down the hill. You don't have to learn how to go. Gravity will do that for you. You need to learn how to stop. The reason being, you are only as good a skier as your ability to stop. You see that? You're only as good a skier as your ability to stop. I said, you're going to be out there. There are people flying all around the place, in and out of trees, in and out of other skiers, and over obstacles, and all this other stuff. And they may be really, really fast, but you got to know that the bottom of the hill is coming and they can be really good, but if they can't stop, it's not going to end well for them at the bottom of that hill. Learn to stop. You're only as good a skier as your ability to stop. I love watching the, the Olympic downhill ski racing and you know, they go upwards of like 40 miles an hour. They're flying down the hill. You ever see them after the finish line? They do that big and they slide for however long to, to stop. They go on forever, it seems, to stop, but they know how to stop. See, one of those skiers could, could ski faster than anyone else on the slopes. They may go 50 miles an hour, blow away the competition. What if they didn't know how to stop? It's going to be their one and only run, right? Because <laughs> it's not going to end well for them. I believe that this was part of Epaphroditus' problem. He didn't know how to stop. And he just went and went and went, and he burned himself out. And he became ill, near to the point of death. He nearly died. So what he needed was rest. And when we talk about rest, probably the most popular passage in Scripture about rest comes from Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30, which says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, Come to me, draw near to the Lord, right? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is a yoke? It is the means by which a beast of burden carries its load. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. He's not saying, give me your load. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. Do, the way, do things the way that I do things, is what it says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. It goes on, verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, you do things the way that I do, and it's going to go easier for you. So how did Jesus do things? Number one, he was compassionate. When he fed the 5,000, we read in Scripture that when he saw the crowds to begin with, he had compassion for them. He felt sorrow for them in all of their needs and was driven to action to do something about it. So the first thing he did is he healed their sick. And then we know he went further to feed them. Jesus had compassion. And that was one account of many. We know that Jesus spent his ministry serving people. He spent his ministry healing people. He spent his ministry evangelizing to people, telling them to repent of their sins and to follow him. And we know also that there was, there was not a lack of opportunity for all of that. He could have been doing it 24-7 every day of his ministry. But is that the only thing that he did? No, take my yoke upon you. Do things the way that I do things. What else did he do? He rested. He got alone with his heavenly father. He got alone with his family. He got alone with his friends. He rested and he was restored. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus rested and he calls us to rest too. Covering the last two verses in Philippians chapter two, we're going to move on to verse 29, which says, so receive him that's Epaphroditus, in the Lord. So Paul's sending, sending him back with all joy and honor such men. One of the way we, ways we can honor such men and women is not burning them out. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So we see that the Philippians had this man, Epaphroditus, who did great things in ministry. He did a lot. He wore a lot of hats. The Philippians sent him to Paul to minister to him and to report to him. And the the picture I get here is that by the time he gets to Paul, he's exhausted. And that's when he starts getting sick. And and I imagine the conversation with Paul, with the way that Paul's talking about sending him back and saying, honor this man. When he got to Paul, the conversation probably went something like Paul saying, bro, you need to rest. I'm sure he called him bro. He said, you need to rest. He rests, he gets him rest, he restores him, and he sends him back. So what can we take from this? Number one, with the Philippians encouraging uh, Epaphroditus in his ministry, it's important and it is good to be encouraged in your compassion. I believe that Epaphroditus would not have met his full ministry potential if not for the Philippians urging him, encouraging him, and motivating him in his compassion and the calling on his life. But at the same time, it is good to be tempered in your compassion. He may have died if it wasn't for Paul saying, you need to rest and restoring him and sending him back. Both of these things are good, and there's a balance that takes place, and there can be a tension as we feel this desire to meet people's needs and their, their, their struggles and their misfortunes. Both are good. I want to wrap up this morning by bringing back a couple of passages that we've already covered in this series as we talk about this compassion and compassion fatigue kind of balance and this tension That we have between the two. And the first is Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, uh, I believe, based on the fact that two weeks ago Scott taught this, last week Ted put this back up. And I think the Lord's trying to tell us something, and I think this is it, that self-centeredness is the antidote for joy. As we're 
covering Philippians, talking about greater joy and ways that we can experience greater joy. And we keep hearing that, that looking to the interests of the others is better than looking to the interests of yourself. Having compassion wherever the Lord leads you, wherever the Holy Spirit communicates to you, hey, this is, this is your wheelhouse right here. This is something you're to be compassionate about. That's how we can experience greater joy. The second passage is Philippians 1.21. It says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Have you ever thought about the fact that for the Christian, the death process is a little bit of a greedy process? You see that? Because for me, as I'm struggling here and, and I'm, I'm fighting the battle, we just came out of the armor series where I'm fighting a battle, I'm taking a stand against the enemy and I'm fighting for the kingdom of God. When I die, I get to depart from all of this struggle and go be with the Lord. But for me, rather, to live is Christ. While I'm here, I'm still in the battle. And so, we often talk about what the Lord might say when we get to heaven. What is he going to say? And what do we desire for him to say? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what we want to hear. Have you ever thought about what Satan might say about you when you die? What might he say? Well, he say, thank goodness, she's gone. Finally. It seemed like she was never going to die. She was in it for the long haul. And boy, did she throw some punches. She served. She loved. She took care of people. She helped people repent. She saved souls for the Lord. And you know what? She's with the Lord now, and we lost her. But let's face it, we were never going to get her, our hooks in her. She's with the Lord now. Or as we talk about compassion fatigue, one thing I fear that could be said is that once someone is, is passed, that Satan could say, yeah, you remember that guy? Yeah, he, he started out pretty strong. I mean, he really, he fought. And we had trouble with him. Boy, he, he led people to Christ. He was, he was on fire. He, uh, he served people. He was really high with compassion. But you know what? Then he fell for our scheme where we told him, you have to be all things to all people all the time. And how dare you rest? How dare you see a struggle and not take it on as your own? You remember that? And then, and then when we finally, we burned him out so much that we broke his resolve. And when we broke his resolve, he couldn't, he couldn't withstand temptation. And then we tore his family apart. Look what all, all we were able to do with that. Yeah, he's gone to be with the Lord. But he was only a flash in the pan. You see, Woodland Hills, we should have compassion. Lean into the Lord. Lean into the calling on your life where he would have you to see sorrow and to take action for it. Have compassion. But be wise. Be wise to be in it for the long game. Don't crash at the bottom of the hill. Live your life in such a way like Christ did where you can rest so you can get on that lift, go back at the top, and make another run. Let's stand and pray together as we dismiss. And I want to remind you that we have the prayer team down front that would love to meet with anyone that needs prayer. Uh, Don't hesitate to come on down after we close. Father, we love you and we're grateful, uh, Lord, for the compassion that you place upon our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us, each of us individually and as a church, as you guide us through uh, seeing to, uh, Lord, take care of the needs of others as you see fit. We thank you for rest. We pray that those that need it would get it, Father, that they would be restored. And we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. And everyone agreed and said, amen. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.